Hey, good morning, Reach Montreal and everybody else who has joined us online as we continue our series, as we study uh, the New Testament letter of 1 Peter, uh, looking at a series called Hope for Exiles. And this week, as I prepared and kind of continued to just kind of stay in touch with the news and and what's going on in our coronavirus world, um, I couldn't help but think of just kind of the image of our whole country is just standing uh, with their noses pressed against the glass, looking out into the world, just wondering when things are going to change, when things are going to get better. And here we are just kind of hoping for the best and, and looking to see when things are going to improve while also feeling this de- deep sense of just uncertainty or, or vulnerability. And it's leaving us feeling rather delicate and, and maybe even insecure about some of the things that, that make up our day-to-day life. And it's almost as if we're, we're at the mercy of the next conflicting report Uh, in the news or on whatever scrolling app we find ourselves about what in the world is going on. And I I have found myself waking up kind of every day just opening the news or, or scrolling through just hoping for good news, hoping for good news about when this is going to end, when it is going to change. Uh, But, but for many, I think fighting to stay relatively productive and reasonably sane is is starting to become more challenging. Our resolve is starting to fade a little bit. And it's not just enough to think optimistically or positively uh, to kind of anchor us. Because as we see, we're just kind of starting to, to drift a little bit and maybe even starting to sink. And there's only so much positivity and optimism to kind of keep us afloat in this season. Uh, viral videos online restoring our faith in humanity or digital distraction or, or binging or working out or dieting or taking walks will only take us so far as we try to weather this and kind of go through this. And I think culturally as just kind of students of culture, students of our, our society, what we're seeing is that the pillars of, of like positivity and, and optimism and health and wealth that have been holding our culture up for so long really are starting to feel the pressure of this. They're starting to kind of crumble under the weight of, of how long will this last. And really, we don't need just optimism or positivity. We need, we need more. We need better. Uh, we need hope. And that's what I want to draw our attention to this morning as we look at First Peter. Before we do that, let me pray for us. Uh, Father in heaven, we do look to you. We, we see you and look to you as the one who is above and outside of time and space and history. And we just ask that you would use our time together this morning, wherever we are, whatever couch we're on, whatever screen we're in front of, that you would use this time as a way to speak hope that you would just kind of well up inside us something that is more lasting and more trustworthy than some of the other things that, that we're just seeing culturally. We just invite you into this time and ask that you would apply these truths to our hearts and minds. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Kate Bowler is a professor at Duke University and she is well acquainted with hardship. Uh, At the young age of 35, she was diagnosed uh, with an incurable form of cancer. And as a young mom, she started to wrestle with the reality of suffering and hardship. And even now, Kate, Kate Bowler, she will go every few months and get a new scan, just waiting for the news to tell her whether this cancer is going to take her life. And this led her to write a memoir called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. 
And in a recent New York Times interview about just kind of a coronavirus world, listen to what she says. The idea that we're all supposed to be positive all the time has become an American, and you can insert Canadian, obsession. It gives us momentum and purpose to feel like the best is yet to come. But the problem is when it becomes a kind of poison in which it expects that people who are suffering, which is pretty much everyone right now, are somehow always supposed to find the silver lining or not speak realistically about their circumstances. The main problem is that it adds shame to suffering by just requiring everyone to be prescriptively joyful. If I see one more millionaire on Instagram yell that she is choosing joy while selling journals in which stay-at-home moms are supposed to write joy mantras, I am going to lose my mind. Now you can hear a little bit of the jest and humor there, but she's pointing at something that's really important to recognize. What Kate Bowler is doing, she's, she's calling attention to kind of the positivity and optimism that our culture has tried to live with for so long. And we can do it fairly easily unless something like this comes to just shake and rattle that sense and morale of positivity and optimism. And what, what we're seeing today and what Kate Bowler is pointing out for us is that we're not able to, to look at just optimism and positivity to carry us through this. Why? Because it's not actually founded on reality. It's not built on anything that's worth building our life on. And this is why we see right now with the, the COVID-19 isolation and social distancing and economic things and all of the things that you and I know and feel We're seeing a rise in in mental and emotional health challenges. We're seeing suicide hotlines overwhelmed by volumes of calls. We're seeing domestic abuse and addiction skyrocketing. Why? Because we don't just need positivity. We don't just need optimism. We We need hope. We need an object of hope that is guaranteed to carry us through times like this. You and I are hope hungry creatures. Without a solid object of hope, we have no meaning or purpose. And what happens is we actually, as people, start to disintegrate. And we're seeing this take place right now in our culture. And this is exactly where Peter is going to point us in the text today. And remember, as we started our series last week, and if you uh, missed last week, I encourage you to go back and re-listen because it kind of introduces everything that we're going to explore over the coming weeks. But what Peter is doing is he's writing in the first century to exiles. He's writing to people who feel and are experiencing very real dislocation and disorientation due to several different things, socially and spiritually. And we talked last week about a not-at-homeness, a not-at-homeness that you and I all feel, this sense that we're not just talking about nations who are exiled, we're talking about a kind of an existential thing that as people we feel exiled that we actually long for a home that we've never been to. And Peter's speaking into that. And I love that Peter doesn't avoid the reality of hardship. He doesn't kind of just like, no, no, hey, hey, don't look at that. Deny that this is real. Look over here and be positive. He actually allows us to sit with the honest and raw feelings of suffering and hardship. Doesn't ignore it. He doesn't avoid making eye contact with it, but he actually encourages us to look suffering right in the face and then offer true hope and shift our attention and focus to what can give hope. And it's interesting that in Peter, a very short letter, 
12 of the 41 uses of the verb to suffer are actually found in 1 Peter, which means amongst the Bible, it actually speaks of suffering proportionately more than any other book in the Bible. So there's something here that Peter has to offer us. And I think if we are able to see it correctly and clearly, we'll be able to come away not just settling for optimism or positivity based on something that may or may not happen, but we're going to see what Peter actually encourages us to shift our focus to. Okay, so here, here we go. First Peter chapter one, we're going to go verse three through nine. Here's what Peter writes. Blessed be, which is just kind of speak good about. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, given us new life. Through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven, guarded, the Greek word is, guarded for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded again through faith for a salvation ready to be, be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, lots of different hardship, so that it's the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, that's a mouthful, and Peter is unpacking a lot of really important things here. But notice that he starts as he's shifting the audience's focus to say that suffering is real, that, that, that you're really going through this, that this isn't easy, this is hard. But notice that he starts by saying, let's speak good about the God that's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the key phrase that he just kind of unpacks for the rest of these verses is a new birth. He talks about being born again. And if you remember last week, how important citizenship is to the first century audience because of Roman citizenship. And to be a Roman citizen uh, was a, a high status and privilege that is given to only very specific people. And one of the ways that you are able to be a Roman citizen is if you are born Roman, right? And so Peter is using this language to say that we are born again with a new identity, a citizenship, that leads to new life, but it's not about Rome or, or Canada or Quebec. It's about this, this heavenly kingdom, this kingdom rule that is in and through Jesus Christ. And what he does is he takes this new birth idea, this image, and it trickles down into three key clauses that he has there. He says, first of all, it's a living hope. Second of all, it's imperishable inheritance. And it's for salvation, a rescue. And he just kind of, preaches those three things and he just unpacks those for us that it's this new identity it's a new birth it's it's finding our life and identity and value in the work of christ that gives us a living hope not a dead hope not just optimism or positivity but a living hope that really is going to stand withstand the test of time and then he talks about an imperishable inheritance now what do you do for an inheritance well nothing it, an inheritance is when you belong to a specific family and a loved one or a relative dies and leaves something for you. And Peter is hyperlinking us back to 
the death of Jesus Christ, but then he's linking it also to the salvation, rescue, and the living hope that is offered to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now for for followers of Jesus, this is either the best news that is true for everyone, or it is the craziest thing that has ever been said. (laughs) And Peter's well aware of that. And he is saying that this isn't just rooted in kind of happy thought or positive vibes or just like speaking stuff into the cosmos and hoping for the best. But this is actually rooted in the past work of Jesus Christ showing that death itself will not have the last word. Now that's amazing. And if you haven't explored that and you're you're not a follower of Jesus and you're kind of just checking out the Christian faith, you have to wrestle with the reality of the the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that there's actually historical precedent to believe that as crazy as it may seem to your modern mind and mine, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And if that is true, then what Peter is saying has all sorts of credibility for you and I right now. And so Peter is just unpacking this new life, the born again reality. And it's great because these verses that we just read and and a few more after that are one sentence in the Greek. It's like Peter just kind of like, He just can't wait to get it out onto the page, right? And he just kind of preaches it out in one big sentence because he's saying that if this is true, then our hope, our hope is founded on something that really is unshakable. He calls it imperishable. That this is a lasting hope. That this isn't just something that can anchor us and and offer us to be a buoy in the water now, but it's something that actually will transcend all things into eternity. That's why he says it's guarded for us. It's protected for us in heaven. And when the, when the Bible uses the word heaven, it's not about a place that we're gonna go to and escape from here. It's, it's the, the reality that this is moving towards renewal. That everything that is wrong will be made right. That there will be a new heaven and new earth. That there's gonna be a restoration. And Peter is trying to take our eyes off of what is right now in front of us on this plane and bring our eyes to the horizon because things are actually going somewhere. That there is hope and this is moving somewhere and it's a living hope, but only if it's rooted in the God that makes this possible. So in a sentence, as we're walking through Peter's letter here, what he said last week to us is that you are not at home. That this not at homeness is actually something that you need to wrestle with because you're not home. And this week, he's just saying, and God is not done. (laughs) You're not home, and God's not done. God's not finished. That there's a living hope. That that the hopelessness that we feel at times, that suffering and hardship will not and does not get the last word. And so what Peter is saying to you and I, he's saying, like, listen, you see that you and I all have an object of hope. That you and I all look to something someone, some end that we trust, right? To make this life worth living, to make it all better. And he uses the word salvation. So you and I all have an object of salvation. You and I all have something that we look to, to, to rescue us, to just whether, whether it's just to rescue us from mediocrity or rescue us from just being like everyone else or just kind of save us from our past or save us from present circumstances. We all have something that we look to to just kind of ride in, save the day and rescue me from what I'm going through. And that's the nature of hope. 
hope must have an object or else it's not it's not hope anymore that's why you know we hope in something we hope for something and so for you what what is it what's the object of your hope especially now as the coronavirus has kind of just just caused us to to take our eyes off of all of the distractions that just kind of keep us busy just kind of fuel us daily and keep us going what are you hoping in what are you hoping for Maybe it's that that career advancement. Maybe it's that raise. Maybe it's that salary. Maybe it's just that the coronavirus passes soon. Maybe you're just hoping generally that things get, get better, that, that loved ones will, will recover, that your startup will take off and you'll be able to provide or that you meet the one by 25 and get married or that your kids don't end up too crazy. <laughs> what are you hoping in? What are you hoping for? Whatever that is, that's the object of your hope that you and I all live by faith and trust in something to just cast itself back into the present moment to give us hope. And in our most honest moments, uh, we're left with, I think, just a sobering, humbling, just gentle reality that often the things that we, we put our hope in, the things that we look to, let us down. And you know, the cliche saying of like, don't get your hopes up. That's, that's kind of where we are. It's just kind of, well, don't get your hopes up because we don't really know what the object of our hopes should be right now with, with everything that's going on in our world. But, but understand something very important here. COVID-19 and, and the coronavirus and all the kind of aftermath and, and you know, current things we're dealing with because of it, the COVID-19 thing didn't introduce anything new to the human experience. This isn't you know, unprecedented in a lot of ways, it's, it's unique in some ways, but this didn't in, introduce anything new into the human experience. It didn't. What it did do though for you and I is it simply like it dropped it right in front of us so that we couldn't ignore something really important. We couldn't ignore the universal and inescapable reality of suffering, of, of hardship. That, that, that it kind of dropped it right in front of us to show us what the object of our hope is and for us in the west and for us in the suburbs and for us in montreal and beyond what this has done for us is it has come and just quickly overnight stripped away the thick layer of insulation that we've built between us and suffering we've built a thick thick moat (laughs) barrier wall and insulation between us and suffering. And what this has done for us, and what Peter is, is really pointing out, is that it confronts us with the reality that none of us is immune to suffering. That you are not immune from hardship and circumstances and trials. That I'm not. That, that no one, regardless of where we are on this planet, how old or young we are, our cultural, cultural background, our ethnicity, our language, our, our socioeconomic bracket, although some of those situations can for a time just kind of stave off and hold off the reality of hardship and maybe just put a thick layer of insulation between us and stuff that's kind of like, ugh, I don't like that, that something like this comes along and it confronts us with a reality that's objectively there and it's objectively true. And that is the reality of suffering and that none of us are immune to it that you and I are vulnerable, that you and I rely on things outside of us to live. And I love that Peter just kind of 
follows the swipe of scripture. He just like follows it by not avoiding this reality, by not avoiding pain, by not avoiding grief, by not avoiding suffering. And I love how honest and raw the Bible is in that. And Christianity offers us something so unique compared to some of the other ideas on the kind of shelf of marketplace thinking and how to actually think through this. So just, just hear me and just kind of hear what Peter is doing here. If your hope is in a trouble-free life, you're chasing a phantom. You're putting your hope in an illusion that will eventually crush you. It will eventually at some point, whether it's now or on your deathbed, you will be confronted with the reality that suffering is real, that it's not an illusion, that it's not something just to ignore, it's not something to avoid making eye contact with, but actually we're more equipped as human beings to experience life, true life, when we look at it face to face, head on, and then wrestle with the reality of it. And I would just say like the modern secular myth that the meaning of life is personal happiness and comfort and prosperity and health and wealth doesn't have a category for us to understand suffering. And even in the Christian circles of thinking, the prosperity theology around like God wants to bless you, you just kind of send praises and prayers up and blessings come down. Um, those teachers and those churches and the, the spokespeople of that, that teaching are very quiet right now. They don't really know what to do because it doesn't fall in line with the fake kind of idol God that they've been talking about. And so in the modern kind of secular health and wealth and prosperity and optimism and positivity, suffering doesn't have a meaningful place. So so it follows that if the meaning of life is personal happiness, comfort, and prosperity, it follows that suffering of any kind, minor or major, is really only seen as an interruption of what is good and meaningful. And so it's very important to understand it's for you and I, it's precisely because the pursuit of happiness is the goal of Western life that suffering is so traumatic for us. It's precisely because we have put our hope in very specific things and very specific experiences that something like this is so shocking and traumatic for our Western minds. That suffering really can only be seen as an inconvenient yet meaningless interruption of my personal pursuit of happiness. And I'm not the first to point this out or to reflect on this. Tim Keller uh, reflects on this so well, just brilliantly as Tim Keller does. He writes this in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Listen to what he says. In the secular view, the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you most happy. In that view of things, suffering can have no meaningful part. It is a complete interruption of your life story. It cannot be a meaningful part of that story. In this approach to life, suffering should be avoided at almost any cost or minimized to the greatest degree possible. This means that when facing unavoidable and irreducible suffering, secular people must smuggle in resources from other views of life, having recourse to ideas of karma, or Buddhism, or Greek Stoicism, or Christianity, 
even though their beliefs about the nature of the universe do not line up with those resources. And he continues, Christianity teaches that contrary to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contrary to Buddhism, that suffering is real. It's not an illusion. Contrary to karma, that suffering is often unfair. That it's not just karmic principle coming back for you. But contrary to secularism, that suffering is also meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, suffering can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. Suffering, Buddhism says, Buddhism says accept it. Karma says pay it. Fatalism says heroically endure it. Secularism says avoid it or fix it. What Tim Keller is doing here is he's showing us that the Christian worldview, that the biblical kind of scope of things and the reality that Jesus Christ revealed as God steps into human history, not to avoid suffering, but to step into it, experience it, and then go through it in order to offer you and I a living hope that ultimately death won't take away, that death can't touch. And what Keller points out here, it's so important, is that if you are not, um, if that's not where you land and that's not how you think about it and that's not the worldview that you live with, what ends up happening is you're forced to hijack Christian values and ethics into your worldview, into your, whether you're, you're an atheist or just a secularist or whatever it is, you're forced to hijack Christian values into your view, even though they don't actually align. But when it's convenient for you, You just kind of take them, you hijack them, you smuggle them, Keller says, into your worldview just to try to make sense of things for a time until you go back to whatever worldview you had before. And so what ends up happening is we end up colonizing other ideas, right? How Western of us. We take Christ's ethics without Christ. We try to live with a kingdom without the king. And what we're left with in the secular mind is that you and I are left to feed off the bone marrow of the Christian worldview like a parasite desperately searching for meaning. And it doesn't work. And it's times like this that our cultural kind of ethos comes crashing down in front of us. And thank God that it does. (laughs) Because these are the moments where you and I are just shaken out of the fast-paced, overly stressed, overly busy material world we live in and we're invited to think about our objects of hope. We're invited to actually think about what is this thing going on deep inside of me that this home, kind of homesickness that I feel right now, what is this hopelessness that I'm feeling right now and where can I find rescue? Where can I find salvation? What or who can save me from this? And uh, John Lennox, who's an uh, Oxford mathematician, uh, he, he already pumped out a book about this coronavirus world. And it's called, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? I read it this week and he said, removing God from the equation does not remove the pain and suffering. Sit with that for a second. So if your response is to kind of like shake your fist at the heavens when stuff doesn't go your way, that doesn't actually deal with anything. <laughs> kind of blame shifting to the God that you and I may or may not believe in doesn't actually deal with the pain and suffering. Here's what John Lennox says. It leaves them untouched. It actually leaves pain and suffering completely untouched. 
But removing God does remove something else, he says, namely, any kind of ultimate hope. Professor Lennox is pointing out exactly what Peter is pointing out. And this is why Peter pushes us past just hopeful optimism and positivity to the only object worthy of true hope, the God of hope. So here, living hope, as Peter talks about it, living hope is not obsessive positivity or denial of reality or optimism. It's a trust, Peter says, in the person and promises of God in light of what he has specifically accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not just a general kind of like throw principles and good vibes into the cosmos and hope that a depersonified cosmos does something for you. He names who this is about. He names where living hope comes from. He names the author of all things, including hope. And his name is Jesus. And so Peter doesn't just settle for optimism. of like, oh, ah, good luck, buddy. Hopefully this gets better. He pushes us deeper and goes, who is this about? What, what are you looking to? What is your object of hope? And I think that's exactly why Peter just is, is so focused on the reality of suffering because just because you and I don't know the reason for hardship and for our suffering doesn't mean there isn't one but the bible is clear about the re- what the reason isn't when we go through this kind of thing the bible is clear that the reason can't be that god doesn't see and god doesn't care and that god doesn't act And that's why Peter uses this analogy of being tested by fire. It's Peter's way of hyperlinking us back to the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, Isaiah was a prophet who uh, lived and and, uh, had his ministry as a prophet in the 8th century. But he writes this about exiles, which is interesting because that doesn't happen for another 200 years. So it's almost like Isaiah Isaiah is speaking into something that is about to happen uh, because the exile hasn't happened yet. Listen to what, Pe- what, what Peter is doing by hyperlinking us to Isaiah. Watch this. Isaiah writes, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. This is God speaking. I have called you by name and you are mine. When, not if, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When, not if, you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord, Yahweh, he names himself. I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. It's amazing that Isaiah is not just kind of going, well, things may get better or they may not. He's saying, regardless of how well things are going, there is a God who is nameable and knowable who loves you and that storms have come for you and I and they will come and they are coming. But that doesn't mean that God is not there, that God is not, um, that God doesn't care, that God is not hearing and seeing what's going on. And Peter says, it's the tested genuineness of your faith. It's like gold being tested by fire. And we know that, that when you, know, you put gold or other diamonds or precious stones into a fire, what happens is all the dross and all of the non-precious materials just get burned off of it. So what are you left with? Something even more beautiful. That, that, that 
Trials and suffering and hardship aren't just meaningless, but that in the hands of God, the God of hope, that they can be meaningful to shape and refine us. And there's another passage that we don't have time to talk about today that Jesus uses this analogy and he says that some people will kind of understand the word of God and come to the message and understand who God is, but it's suffering. It's, it's trials that will take them away from it. And Peter is saying the same thing. That, that what you believe about God is not proven when everything's going okay. What you believe about God is most proven by when you go through trials and suffering and hardship. So think about it as like resistance training. I grew up in a very athletic family with a lot of fighting and combat sports and martial arts. And sometimes you would do just crazy things to resist as you train. You'd wear masks that kind of like cut off your breathing so that your cardio develops or whatever it is. And resistance training is, is this, this idea that if we, we put resistance, that something is going to grow stronger, something's going to grow better, something's going to improve. And, and more than that, when you think about it just beyond even just athletics, we know that the most influential authors and thinkers and athletes of history aren't those who just kind of like walk into it because they're uber talented, but are those that, that come through real hardship. So, so people who haven't, been shaped by suffering rarely shape culture. People who haven't been shaped by this refining fire, shaped by hardship, rarely do anything that's worth even remembering. Uh, when Malcolm Gladwell, the historian and writer and, and cultural uh, commentator, came to Montreal a while ago, a few weeks back, uh, well, months, I guess, um, I, went, I went to see him, and his book, David and Goliath, is a good example of this, where, where Gladwell writes David and Goliath, and he talks about the advantage of disadvantage, and he shows, he just kind of goes and documents all the successful figures of history who have succeeded, not in spite of challenges and suffering, but because of them. <laughs> And that that's the only reason we're still talking about them. That it's, it's a tested genuineness of who they are. It's a tested genuineness of your faith and your object of hope. And that this whole COVID-19 world is actually an opportunity for you and I to be invited to examine our objects of hope. Are they getting burned up by this right now? Completely just disintegrated, left in a pile of ashes? Or are you being refined because your hope is rooted in the God who, who hears, who cares, who loves, and ultimately took death and sin and suffering on himself in Christ. That that suffering reveals what's true it, behind our beliefs and what we actually hope in. It really shows what we're made of. It, it shows what we believe about life and meaning and, and ourself and others and ultimately God. That's what suffering does for us. If it's positioned correctly. Now, Keller continues one more time, and he says this, suffering transforms our attitude towards ourselves. It shows us how fragile we are. Average people in Western society have extremely unrealistic ideas of how much control they have over how their lives go. Suffering removes these blinders. It does not so much make us helpless and out of control as it shows us that we have always been vulnerable and dependent on God. Suffering merely helps us wake up to the fact and live to that fact and live in accordance with it. Keller's helping us see that this isn't something new. It's just actually calling our attention to something that's always been there. And the pages of the Bible and the gospel of Jesus in particular just drip with hope in the midst of suffering. 
not necessarily an escape from it, not necessarily an immediate gratification of God doing things for me, not that nothing bad or hard will happen, but that God is the only one who can offer hope and meaning when bad and hard things happen. That is the Christian hope. That is the hope that Peter is pointing our eyes to. And it's very interesting that this health and wealth and prosperity thing has become so so popular in our culture, yet we can see clearly that it's not working. And this coronavirus pandemic is is showing us exactly that. It's just kind of removing the carpet from under our feet and showing us what lies underneath. And Jesus doesn't promise health and wealth and prosperity. He actually promises the opposite. He actually encourages the opposite of casual optimism. And in John 16, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Okay, so, so just sit with that. You will. No, not, not maybe or not, well, you will, but you could just kind of build a thick layer of insulation and get a nice house in the burbs. And, no, no, but you will have trouble. You will. Here's what he says. But take heart because I have overcome the world. So in this world, you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. I'm, I'm over and above. I'm, I'm, I'm outside yet within that. That suffering and hardship is, is the rule, not the exception, but God broke all of the rules and stepped into it to take it upon himself for you and I. And Peter calls this trials of all kinds. So think about yours for a second. What are yours? If trouble will come, what are some of yours? Be, be honest. They're, they're real. Some of the things you're feeling, they're, they're real. Don't minimize them. Don't compare them to other people who have it much harder. Just kind of shift away from the false humility of that and just just be real. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. What what is it? What are those things that are just kind of pressing in right now? What are some of the things that, that are showing you that your objects of hope haven't been reliable? That they will not stand the test of time? That they will not last? Because Peter shows us that living hope is not just about the future. Because that that would just, again drift us into optimism of like, well, maybe it will. It'll get better one day. Peter actually shows us that living hope is is about the present. That's why he says now for a little while, (laughs) suffering and hardship are gonna be the reality. He compares that to the scope of eternity by saying that now is just a little while, but but it's still now. It's still present. It's real. And then in verse eight and nine, if you remember, Peter says, though you have not seen him, talking about Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome, future tense, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he takes the future hope and the past reality and just kind of brings them together in the present. What Peter does brilliantly here, he just takes the past and the future and he casts them into the present because that is what energizes us there. And it's kind of redundant, but he says rejoice in joy. The Greek behind that is actually jumping for joy, like leaping for joy. That in the midst of hardship, the invitation is to take the future hope and the past reality of who God is and what he's done and allow those to cast energy and feed the present because then regardless of what we're facing, we can jump for joy. We can leap for joy. Now imagine that. There's, a, there's very few things in this world that would cause me to leap for joy. Like maybe a, a round of applause, <laughs> maybe a fist pump, 
but but jumping for joy. One of my favorite uh, hip hop lyrics is the past is the present for the future. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's, he's saying that the Christian hope looks back to the risen Christ in order to look forward to the grand finale, the renewal, the restoration of all things. And those two things feed the present. And here's why we have a hard time doing that. There's a few things. But immediate gratification and kind of deferred hope really makes it hard for us to sit in the present and bring those two things together. But also, secondly, planning and strategizing has replaced hoping. Today in our culture, planning has replaced hoping. We've ended up making this tragic exchange. We've traded future hope for present control. We've exchanged reality at a large scope for strategy in a smaller scope. We've exchanged future hope for immediate gratification. And it's leaving us hopeless. It's showing us that we're not in control. And that can be a gift to us, depending on how we shift, depending on what we do with it. Uh, Pastor John Mark Comer in, um, in, in the Western States, he, he recently said this, planning is an attempt to control our future based on prediction and to shape our future to match our desires. Here's the difference. But hoping is the act of surrender to God's future based on a deep, calm confidence in his love, wisdom, and involvement in the world. I love that. Now, it's not bad to plan. Strategy is good, but planning and strategizing cannot replace hoping. And what Peter is doing is it's an invitation to, once our plans are all done, (laughs) once our strategies are not working, he is shifting our attention to hoping. It's an invitation to abandon false hopes and false objects of hope that cannot anchor us in the storm of suffering. And he's also inviting us to abandon uncritical ideas like God doesn't let bad things happen to good people as if you and I know what good is. Or if I live a good life, God will bless me. Or if I follow Jesus, he will give me what I tell him to. Or if I my kids go to Sunday school, they'll turn out all right. Or if I invest my money, I guarantee a return or whatever it is. Now, Peter's inviting us to abandon those plans, abandon the strategizing, abandon the little kingdoms that we've built for ourselves. And as counterintuitive as it seems, Peter is challenging us to look suffering square in the eyes and let it show us what we've built our life on. And Christ on the cross is the exact same thing. That, that it's not time to turn away from it, but it's time to look right at it. Look directly at it. Look suffering and hardship and brokenness in the face and then look to see where our true help and hope comes from. So as we wrap up, could it be that what's happening right now is not out of God's control, but it's showing us that we're not in control? Could it be that God allows suffering not because he is unloving, but because he is loving? Could it be that this is an invitation to abandon all objects of hope that won't stand the test of time? Could it be that that God turns pain and death against itself and uses it to produce something refined, something beautiful, something more precious than gold? 
the great philosopher and thinker C.S. Lewis wrote in The Problem of Pain that pain insists upon being attended to, that, that you can't ignore it. You can try, you can kind of drown it out, you can insulate yourself from it, but it insists upon being attended to. And he says, God does whisper in our pleasures. There's evidence of that. He does speak in our conscience for sure, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So regardless of where you are, I think this reality globally that we're experiencing together is an opportunity for God to just take his megaphone and rouse deaf ears. That he would just shine brighter and better to open blind eyes. And maybe that's you. Maybe this is the first time that you've been encountered and just kind of confronted with these realities. And rather than kind of shake your fist at the heavens or just settle for optimism that's just going to to, uh, finally uh, not bring you through this, maybe this is an opportunity to turn our attention to true hope, to uh, the true object of hope, the author and finisher of, of life. And it begs the question for us, begs the question for you, it begs the question for me, what is this season of vulnerability saying to you? If this could be a megaphone for God to speak to you and I and to speak to an entire globe that just tends to drift towards self-sufficiency and and independence from God, what is this uncertainty and hardship saying to you? Maybe you haven't listened to it yet. Maybe you haven't slowed down to hear it yet. Maybe you haven't quieted your anxieties and your, your grasping for control yet to hear it. And this is the invitation to shift from objects of hope that, that are not living hope to the God who offers it, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it's truly good news that God doesn't stay far off, but that he enters into human suffering and the experience of this brokenness, but that he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just say, well, that's, that's all I got. He offers true and living hope because death itself is silenced. So if, if, if death itself is silenced, then every other kind of hardship ultimately will meet its end. Could it be that God is shouting at you and I right now about a living hope? Could it be that God is shouting, I, I'm here? Could it be that God is shouting, I, I love you, I, I'm for you, I, I desire you, I died for you, I am the only one who can give you life? Could it be? I believe that God is doing that right now. I believe that God is using this as an opportunity to speak loudly, to use his megaphone, to just rouse our ears to something that we all desperately need. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 15, and I'll I'll leave you with this. He's approaching the end of his letter to the church in Rome, and he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. May the God of hope fill you and I with all joy and peace as we trust in him so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I want that. Maybe you want that. This is the true and living hope. It's the God of hope that offers us this, this living hope that can't be touched by any hardship or suffering that we're going through. And all it takes is for us to acknowledge that and surrender the little bit of control that we've had or that we've thought we've had and give our life to this God of hope and watch him fill 
and overflow and refine and change and beautify you and I from the inside out. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, you are the God of hope who doesn't just stay far off. You're not a God who is just apathetic and far from us. If there's anything true about the gospel, it's that it's good news that you step into what we are experiencing and you go through it and far past it to turn back and cast energy and hope into the present. So I just pray for everyone right now, regardless of what they are going through, how severe or how minor they think it is, it is real to them. And I pray that you would use this opportunity, this kind of season of, of cir- these circumstances that seem so strange, that you would use this opportunity to wake up our hearts, to thaw away from just insulating ourselves with immediate gratification and toys and trinkets and that you would turn our attention to true hope, the hope that we have in you, the fact that we would look behind us, God, that you would invite us to look behind us to the past and just see breadcrumbs of you providing and caring for us and that we would be able to look forward to the future, that you are not done with this, that what you accomplished on the cross through Jesus was just a foretaste of the coming renewal and restoration of all things because of your love. We thank you for that and we rejoice in that. We jump for joy in that being true and the reality that you are the God of hope who overflows us from the inside out with power and hope because of who you are and what you're doing. We love you. We ask that you continue to provide for us as you always have. We ask these things, the only name that matters and will matter. In Jesus' name, amen.